Let us pray. God of mercy, God who forgives, you promised never to break your covenant with us. You promised to keep us in your family. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. Then may we respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Old Testament reading today is from Genesis chapter 9, verse 8 through 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy, to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all the flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Our New Testament reading is from Mark chapter 1, verse 9 through 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from the heaven, you are my son, the beloved, and with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out, of, out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Couple things before I begin. First of all, that freezer that Pam talks about gets bigger and better every time. It was really mammoth. The other thing, I've been fighting a kind of allergy cough, and so if I break out in coughing, it's not a medical emergency, it's a communications problem, and so we'll try to deal with that. When you read the book of Genesis, you see a downward spiral of chaos and violence. God places man and woman in the garden, this wonderful place, and immediately they disobey. And then Cain kills his brother Abel. Later on, Lamech claims to be even more cruel and violent than Cain. And by the time of Noah, the violence, the evil, the chaos has metastasized. And so every human being, except for Noah, is part of this. And it's so terrible 
that God begins to regret that he had even created human beings. And in fact, he decides to wipe the slate clean and start over. And only Noah is saved. When you open the newspaper, when you turn on the television set, listen to the news, those stories seem all too present when you think about what's happening in Gaza, in Ukraine, what happened in Kansas City last week. These kind of things are becoming the norm. And you wonder, maybe like God, is it worth it to have a human race? Are things always getting worse? What I want us to think about today is how do we respond to the pain of the past, the violence, the chaos? And I'm thinking about how do we respond when it happens to us? How do people in Ukraine or Gaza or Israel respond to that? And I want to use a couple of examples. Examples from Africa. Pam mentioned that I've spent a lot of my time thinking about Africa, teaching about Africa, working in Africa. There are two examples of horrific violence, horrific tragedy, and you probably know at least one of them, maybe both. The first is Rwanda. In 1994, in a matter of a couple months, in the country of Rwanda, beautiful country, just a wonderful country, between 600 and 800,000 people were killed out of a population of about 6 million. This slaughter did not happen because a drone was flying thousands of feet in the air and somebody was controlling it with a joystick from a distance. Rather, these killings happened very close, very intimate, face-to-face. -face. Neighbors took machetes and killed their neighbors. Former friends killed former friends. Even members of family attacked other members if they happened to have married somebody from the wrong ethnic group. Pastors, priests, teachers were implicated because the genocidaire, the killers, would come into a classroom, into a church, and ask the pastor, the priest, the teacher to identify which of these students, which of these parishioners are part of the Tutsi ethnic group. And the pastor, the priest, the teacher would comply, and people would be killed. The other example is the example of Liberia. I taught at the University of Liberia in Cuttington University in the 1980s with Janet. In 1989, a civil war broke out and it lasted for about 15 years. Ended in about 2004 or so. And again, the violence was a violence that was very intimate. It was a violence that relied on child soldiers, children given guns and forced to kill other people. 
I heard horrible stories. I was able to go back to Liberia in 1989, or 1999 to do research, and a young man told me that he killed his fiancée. Not because he didn't love her. <coughs> Excuse me. He killed her because he wanted to pr protect her from being tortured and raped, which was going to happen to her. Uh, a woman would walk down the road, a pregnant woman, and soldiers would look, and they'd say, hmm, wonder if that fetus is a boy or a girl. We'll settle that by taking the woman and slitting her throat and, and settling the bet. Old men and old women were forced to pump tire. And what that means, you put your hands on your head and you go up and down and up and down, not for one or two times, but for 20 or 30 or 40 times. Now, how do people respond to that? How would you respond to that? And that's what I want us to think about today. And, and these are horrific examples. But we all have things in our own lives when we've been the victim of something, when we've experienced pain. And I want us to think about how people in Rwanda and people in Liberia responded. In Rwanda, the response was to remember. Very much like in Poland and Germany, people established Holocaust museums. And the idea was we should never forget so that it never happens again. And that's exactly what people in Rwanda did. They set up genocide memorials. And I was able to visit one in, I think, 1999, 1998, four or five years after the genocide. And this memorial was in a school, a secondary school. It was a school where people had taken refuge during the genocide, hoping to be safe. Families were there with their children. The genocidaire came, threw gasoline into the rooms, lit them on fire, and incinerated people. And if people tried to escape and come out, they were attacked and hacked with machetes. I visited that school with a friend of mine who was a Tutsi University student. We came to the school, and the guides took me to a room, one of the school rooms opened the door and motioned for me to go in. And there inside the room were racks of human bodies, preserved with some kind of chemical that I can still smell. There were men and women whose hands were up over their heads to protect themselves, and the hands had been chopped off. The feet had been chopped off. There were young girls wearing blue school uniforms. And I was horrified. And then the guides said, we'll go to the next room. It was the same thing, and the next room, and the next room. You leave that kind of place with a conviction that every Tutsi is a victim Every Hutu is a killer. And it 
simply makes concrete the anger, the pain, the bitterness. And of course the danger is that it'll then sometime later be used in retribution. In Liberia, the, the response was very, very different and yet with similar consequences. I was able to go back to Liberia in 1999 and do research. The Civil War was still going on, but it was a war that would happen here and there, and a lot of the parts of the country were relatively calm, for a time at least, and so I was able to visit many, many places. And I asked people, how are you, how are you dealing with the horrors that you saw? One of my good friends, a young man, had been tortured during this civil conflict. He had been accused of something by the other side. His tortures hung him upside down. He was forced to sing songs praising the other side. He eventually managed to escape some way and wound up in a refugee camp in nearby Ivory Coast. And he was in the refugee camp when who should show up but the man who had tortured him. And this man had come from his home area. They had known each other before. And I said to my friend, what happened? He said the man asked if he could stay with me. What? He would stay with you? Well, there weren't many places to stay in the refugee camp. And I said, what did you do? I let him stay. I said, how did you deal with that? We never talked about it. It never came up. I interviewed a class of sociology students at Cuttington University, and I gave them each a sheet of paper and said, write down on the sheet of paper the most horrendous thing you saw, experienced, or heard about during the conflict. And they wrote the usual litany of things. And then I said, write down how did you respond? And out of the 30 students, almost all of them, I think 26 or 27, wrote on their sheet of paper, we forgot. We've forgotten. In other words, we've put it aside. And I'm thinking suppression. And so you see these very two different responses. Rwanda, Liberia. Remembering or forgetting. And as I'm sure you all are thinking, these responses both are dangerous. They're unsatisfactory. They're unsatisfactory at a national level, at a community level, at a family level, or a personal level, for a lot of reasons. One is, with remembering and with forgetting, and you hold the past in escrow and it's ready to bubble out, 
we as human beings are not very good at paying back. We always pay back a little bit more. And so you have a cycle of retribution, a cycle of escalating pain and violence. It's easy for persecuted people to become the persecuted. You see that over and over in history. For the victims to become the victimizers, the oppressed to become the oppressors. With forgetting, the past is held in escrow, and so it's probably going to come out sometime later, and I talked to people about that in Liberia, and they said, absolutely. But the real problem is both remembering and forgetting reject the possibility of restoring relationships. These people are going to have to live together. They're neighbors. They're family. And the strategy of forgetting, the strategy of remembering, is not going to allow for healing and restoration. And yet I think we all know these are familiar strategies. Now, the stories I told are extreme. But we probably can think of examples of that in our own lives. Things that have happened to us that were not fair, that were cruel, that were painful. And it's easy for us to remember them or suppress them in our communities, our family, our workplace, our personal lives. And so I want to think about a better way. And that's the way of the New Testament, the way of Jesus. Now, we read this morning in the scripture the story of the flood. And at the end of the flood, at the end of destroying all of human life and all animals except for a very few, God puts down a rainbow. Now, we think of the rainbow sort of like the Wizard of Oz. Bluebirds fly, the skies are blue. That isn't what the rainbow was in Genesis. The rainbow in Genesis, and ancient people thought about this in this way, the rainbow was a weapon. It was the bow of war. God puts down his bow of war, saying, I will never again use it against humanity. In some ways, that's unsatisfying, because if you end there, you haven't moved toward restoring community. God simply declares a truce. I want to use another example to think about what forgiveness looks like, and it's an example probably you all know, and that's the example of South Africa. South Africa faced generations of segregation, discrimination. It was actually written into the Constitution as apartheid, and it was enforced with violence. People would be arrested and accidentally fell out of a seven-story police building. It had bars on the window. People were tortured in prison. The response was a guerrilla movement trying to use violence to overthrow the government. 
And everybody in the 1970s and 1980s thought that South Africa would end in some kind of bloody uprising, chaos, wasn't clear which side would win, but everybody knew. White people knew, black people knew. This was going to end very violently. It didn't. South Africa in 1994 went through a peaceful transition to a multi-ethnic, multiracial democracy. And it prided itself as a nation which people came together. Why did this happen? It happened for a lot of reasons, but two people are especially important in this transition. Nelson Mandela and Bishop Desmond Tutu, and you all know both of their stories. Mandela had been a prisoner on Robben Island, sort of like Alcatraz, if you've been to Alcatraz in San Francisco, out in the ocean. He had been a prisoner there for 17 years, often in solitary confinement. Mandela could have been angry, he could have wanted revenge. In fact, the people in his political party, the African National Congress, said we've got to get rid of the white people in South Africa, expel them or take away their property, treat them like we, they treated us. Mandela said no. Every human being has value. Every human being belongs. And so when Mandela became president, he said no matter whether you're white or black or Indian, you belong in South Africa. And he lived that out in his life. For example, every year, he held a picnic at the executive mansion, Grotesquier in Cape Town. And it was a picnic for people who had been at Robben Island. Not just the prisoners, but the guards and their families. He brought people together. Desmond Tutu was the other person. Mandela drew very much on his African roots, the philosophy of Mbuntu, which every human being has value. Tutu drew very much on his Christian faith, deeply committed, joyful, wonderful man, Archbishop of Cape Town, and he was responsible in large part for having the idea of forgiveness written into the Constitution of South Africa. South Africa had something called a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And it went around the country and people who had done terrible things, policemen who had tortured Africans, African freedom fighters who had inflicted harm on, on white people, would come to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and said, this is what I did. And they'd be granted pardon and forgiveness. And the idea was that people need to be included. People are part of a family. It wasn't cheap grace, cheap forgiveness. And forgiveness is not easy. In the book of Genesis, we're reminded of the story of Jacob. Jacob eventually reconciled with his brother, but it took, gener it took decades. It wasn't easy. And the kind of forgiveness that came in South Africa was not easy. 
but it became the norm, the ideal. And I talked to a number of people in South Africa who, in 1994, and times I went back later, would say, I was walking down the street or I went into a grocery store and there I saw the person who had tortured me, who had abused me. And I went up to them and I said, I forgive you. And we became friends. That wasn't always the story for everybody. Some people who were more honest said, I wouldn't do that ever. But it became the national narrative, partly because of what Mandela did and what Tutu did. That's the Jesus way. And you could all quote a lot of scriptures, tell a lot of stories that Jesus told that illustrate this. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Show love to the enemy. One of the last things Jesus did before he died was to ask God to forgive the Roman soldiers who were crucifying him. In the book of Genesis, God stops the process of retribution. In the New Testament, Jesus goes much further. He extends forgiveness. He includes. He brings people back. He forgave Peter, one of his best friends who betrayed him. He told the story of the prodigal son in which the son is invited back into the family as a full member. Jesus said forgiveness is an imperative. It's something we need to do and not put off. If you're going to the temple and you're giving a sacrifice at the altar, one of the most important things you could do, and you remember that you need to restore relationships with your brother, drop what you're doing at the temple and rush off and give forgiveness and ask forgiveness. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, Forgive us because we're forgiving people. And so that's our mandate as Christians, as members of Manitou Church. We're tempted to take the path of forgetting or suppressing, remembering. It's not easy, but the example of South Africa shows that it's possible even at a national level. And when we think about Ukraine or Gaza, Israel, those conflicts are never going to be resolved without forgiveness. Those people are going to have to live together. And unless there's a constant cycle of violence and retribution, There needs to be forgiveness. And if South Africa can achieve that at a national level, it can happen other places, and it can happen in our own lives. As a community of Christians, we should be known as people who forgive, who make it possible for wrongdoers to repent, who welcome wrongdoers back into the family, into the community, Christians are people who extend forgiveness. 
because they're deeply aware that they also are forgiven. Amen.